Hello, Gasly Ghouls. I'm Lee. And I'm Devin. Welcome to Gasly. Devin, what's new with you? Well, what is new with me? Um, I started my new job this week. It's been a lot of fun so far, just learning how everything works on the corporate and enterprise side of things and excited for tomorrow. What's new with you, Lee? What's new with me is that we've been planning our really delayed honeymoon since oh, we got yeah. married like two and a half months ago, and and we cannot decide where to go. We're thinking maybe something European. Yeah. I really want to go to Rome, but I've already been a few times, and so I don't know if that would make it less magical. I don't think you could make Rome less magical, but I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think we should save Rome for when Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg fight. In the Colosseum. Yeah. That battle. Maybe like Canada. Some mountains mm, in Canada. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you guys have any recommendations or know of any super mega magical spots, um, let us know. Shoot us a message on Gasly Podcast on Instagram. Lee, what's on the agenda for today? What are we talking about? Today, I am covering a case that turns 20 years old this month. So we are rewinding back to August of 2003. This story takes place in Erie, Pennsylvania, a town of almost 100,000 residents that lies on the southern shore of Lake Erie, which is one of the five Great Lakes. We zoom into an area that is a bit outside of downtown. This is on Peach Street. It's an unassuming area. There's a frozen custard shop, barber shop, PNC bank, an eyeglass store, a Dollar General, and all this kind of backs up to a middle-class suburban neighborhood. Everything you need to survive. And as normal as an area as this sounds, not all is peachy on Peach Street. Ooh. A woman working as a bank teller at the PNC Bank that I mentioned is working her shift on August 28th of 2003. In the middle of the day, a bit after 2.30 p.m., a bald white man in his mid-40s walks up to the counter with a cane and a strange-looking collar around his neck. He slides a note across the counter, which states that a bomb will detonate in 15 minutes and he needs $250,000 from the vault and that he will use his shotgun if anybody tries to escape or does not cooperate with these orders. Okay, so we're going straight into a movie. Yeah, he then grabs a free lollipop from the basket on the counter. That's and just, a movie scene. Yeah, casually <laughs> pops it in his mouth while he waits for the teller to grab his money. The bank teller takes another look at the man and realizes that the cane he's been walking with is a shotgun. Hmm. But it looks like a homemade shotgun and it's fashioned specifically to look like a cane which is very strange. That's awesome. And the weird collar that he's wearing is really bulky, but he has his white t-shirt pulled up super high on his neck and attempt to cover it up, but you can still see it kind of sticking out the back. Thankfully, the bank staff is properly trained. She acts calmly but swiftly. She tells him quietly that she cannot get the vault open within 15 minutes, but can give him all of the cash that she has available right now. So as the man waits... She fills a bag with $8,702 and slides it back to the strange man. He grabs the bag and he exits the bank about 12 minutes after first entering. He even waited in line for a bit. Yeah, that's and a good lick. Yeah, as he leaves, he is just swinging his fresh bag of money and shotgun cane with lots of pep in his step. That's what witnesses say. They actually compare him to looking like Charlie Chaplin. Oh, yeah. Just bopping through the bank. 
Okay. So all of this has been done very silently. But of course, his strange collar catches the attention of at least one bystander. The collar is an aquamarine teal color and looks like a metal handcuff, just a huge handcuff that's large enough to wrap around a neck instead of a wrist. Under the chin, connected to the collar are what appear to be two pipe bombs, two timers, and some electrical wiring hanging down to the man's chest, which he tries to hide by pulling his shirt up high in the bank. And of course, something like this would catch the eye of a bystander, even if the man in the collar had been quiet otherwise. Yeah, it sounds like it'll stand out. And at 2.38 p.m., police receive a 911 call from somebody saying that they just saw a man with, quote, a bomb or something wrapped around his neck, end quote, leaving the PNC Bank on Peach Street. Got him. So they dispatch to the bank immediately, hoping that he does not evade them and get in his car and flee. So they arrive at the bank at about 2.50, which is 12 minutes after the 911 call, and they quickly spot a bald white man in his 40s with a blue bomb-looking collar around his neck, standing next to his car in a nearby parking lot of an eyeglass store. Was he going shopping? Did he just get done robbing a bank with a bomb and he's like, you yeah, know he's what? just, Let me just around. walk across the street and go, you spend this money. You'll see. He's in the parking lot, but um, I'll get into what he was doing in a little bit. Okay. So police rush in to arrest him, handcuffing him and sitting him down on the pavement right by his car, right where he was. Because he does appear to be wearing a bomb and he tells them this is a bomb and it's actively making beeping noises from its timers, police also immediately begin clearing the area of any pedestrians that may be nearby. Although this isn't an area where there's a ton of foot traffic, it's not downtown. So it takes them about 10 minutes after arresting the man and 30 minutes after the original 911 call reporting the bomb caller to actually call the bomb squad in. And this should have been done far sooner than it was. While they wait around for the bomb squad, this man is still sitting on the pavement with the hot mid-afternoon August sun basking down on everybody. Police begin to question him from afar uh, since they're taking cover, and the collared man frantically tells them that he is a pizza delivery man and delivered a pizza to three black people. Okay. These people took him, forced this bomb collar around his neck, gave their shotgun to him, and threatened to kill him if he didn't rob $250,000 from the bank for them. Yep. He explains to police that he's being watched by them right now from a distance. He says he has to complete this whole scavenger hunt that the three men have set up for him, and if he finishes in time, the scavenger hunt will give him the keys to unlock his handcuff collar that he's wearing. Throughout this conversation, this man is begging for police to help remove his bomb collar. He's freaking out as the beeping noises from the timer are getting louder and louder and more and more frequent. But police aren't trained to disarm something like this. They're not the bomb squad. And the bomb squad is actually stuck in traffic on the way. Strangely, though, the news reporters have arrived before the bomb squad um, to cover the shocking story. So they're sitting around, too, with their cameras rolling. And as the news cameras are on, streaming on live TV and zoomed in on the man with the bomb collar that yeah. is beeping faster and faster and faster. What's going to happen? The live stream captures the tragic footage of the bomb detonating. Wait, really? Residents all throughout Erie, Pennsylvania watch as a hole gets blown into this man's chest on live TV at 3.18 p.m. Damn. This man's name is Brian Wells 
a 46-year-old pizza delivery driver from Warren, Pennsylvania, originally, who has been murdered on live television on August 28, 2003. So this wasn't some ploy. This was a real threat. Like, what he said is probably true. People strapped a bomb on him and made him do it. Yeah, because I don't know why you would strap a bomb to yourself and end up killing yourself and not even being able to spend the money that you robbed. It sounds like it really was somebody else driving this. The bomb squad arrives three minutes after Brian dies from a hole in his chest. The most they can do to help at this point is to investigate his caller to find more details. And unfortunately, to investigate this caller, they have to decapitate Brian posthumously to get the caller off. So they find that the caller would have been completely impossible for Brian to safely defuse the bomb on time. The bomb had four locks and a combination dial, and it has police thinking that it's very unlikely that a person would put this contraption on their own neck with no hope of living. Mm. So a bank has been robbed, a man has allegedly been forced to wear a bomb and murdered with it on live TV. Police immediately begin their investigation, and the most logical first place to search is Brian Wells' car, which is right there in front of them. So here they find a note addressed to, quote, bomb hostage, end quote. And this note is nine handwritten pages detailing how Brian was supposed to rob the bank and subsequently drive around on a tight time limit to locate multiple keys where each key would supposedly delay the detonation. And the last key was said to defuse the bomb collar, like a super disturbing, deadly scavenger hunt. Yeah, it's like a challenge in Saw. It does seem like that. So the note says that these people will be watching him every step of the way, and if police are contacted, the bomb will be detonated immediately. At the end of the nine-page note, in all caps, is written, quote, Act now, think later, or you will die. End quote. So this note is a great start as far as evidence comes, but police are confused. They wonder, is this note staged? Is it really written by Brian? Or did three customers of Brian's really order pizza and force their delivery driver to wear the bomb collar and rob a bank? Like, is this completely random? And whose handwriting is this? Who made the bomb? What was the purpose of the whole scheme? And if someone did write this letter and is indeed watching Brian, Are they nearby right now, hiding in plain sight? Did they watch him die in the parking lot? As police search further in Brian's car, they find another note in the same handwriting. Apparently, Brian had already followed the original nine-page notes scavenger hunt to the first step. So he had found the first hint for key number one, and this is why he was still in the same area as the bank when the police had arrived 20 minutes after the 911 call. He had been searching for this key in the same area. So it seems increasingly apparent to police that Brian really was forced into this demented scavenger hunt by somebody else. This new two-page note provides instructions for the next clues to find keys for his bomb. And this is huge. This is in real time right after he had been killed. So some police follow the directions, rushing to the next spot in hopes of finding more hints. But after following the instructions to a T and arriving where the note said to go, somebody had already beaten the police to the area and gotten rid of the next note leaving police at a complete dead end with no more clues or instructions to guide them. They don't know where to go from here. Now, 
they're stuck with this horribly bizarre death-ridden bank robbery and possibly three mysterious people hiding in the shadows, guilty of murder and guilty of coordinating a bank robbery. As massive as this story grows in the news, gaining local and countrywide attention, police aren't getting really any viable leads. Nothing to help identify who could have written those notes. Police do speak with his employer to try to find out who he delivered those pizzas to, who was his last delivery, but the call was put in from a payphone and they don't know the actual identity of the person who called. Police don't get any leads, nothing at all for weeks, until three weeks after Brian Wells' tragic and mysterious death, Police get a phone call from a man named Bill Rothstein, okay. and Bill has something to confess. Uh-oh. Bill says guilt has been weighing on him because there is a dead human body in his freezer in his garage. That guilt will eat you up, baby. The story behind this, though, is that his ex-girlfriend named Marjorie called him up one day and explained that she had just murdered her boyfriend named James Roden. Marjorie said they had been arguing and she killed James with a shotgun when the argument became too heated, so she needed help getting rid of his body. So she recruited her ex-boyfriend, Bill, to help for $2,000. And at this point, honestly, Bill probably thought she'd kill him too if he didn't help. Not to really give him credit, but anyways, Bill put James Roden's dead body in a freezer in his garage and kept him there until his conscience ate him up. And here he is calling the police. But as shocking as the story is, Bill says one last thing that catches police's attention. He says, quote, James's death had nothing to do with that Brian Wells case, end quote. Why would he even think to link those two cases weeks later if they're completely unrelated? So this piques the interest of police as they arrest Bill for having a corpse in his house. And they continue to question him about the fact that he has a dead body in his house. And they want to know more about his ex-girlfriend who killed the man. What is the story with Marjorie? And why did she supposedly kill her ex-boyfriend? What's going on here? So this ex-girlfriend's name is Marjorie Deal Armstrong who's a 54-year-old woman at the time of this questioning in 2003. Wow. She and Bill had dated 30 years prior in the early 70s. She's lived nearby in Erie, Pennsylvania, basically her whole life, and she comes from a wealthy family. Her father is a multimillionaire, and Marjorie started life as a focused and super ambitious young lady who was actually valedictorian of her high school, and after that earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree at a private college in Erie. In Marjorie's 20s, though, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which only worsened as the years progressed, and it actually ended up sparking some major complications in her life. She ended up racking up a criminal record and hanging around some sketchy people. This woman also has a really long list of boyfriends and husbands who have died under suspicious circumstances near her. And Is she related to the ogre or the ogress? If you guys don't know what Devin's referring to, go back and listen to our episode titled Indiana Ogress. I don't remember. It's like episode seven or eight, something like that. Yeah. It's so interesting, but it kind of does sound like this woman. And James Roden is just the most recent boyfriend who has died and or disappeared under suspicious circumstances. Back in 1984, Marjorie murdered her boyfriend, Robert Thomas, by shooting him six times. 
but she was somehow acquitted of this because she claimed self-defense. Although that doesn't really make sense to me considering her boyfriend was lying down on the couch at the time of his murder, not even touching her, not even standing up, nothing. Yeah, but he was threateningly laying down. True, apparently. (laughs) In addition to her suspicious past with men, apparently now as Marjorie ages, she's become very concerned that her father is spending too much of his money and that she won't get an inheritance from him. That's a concern. So, yeah, basically she thinks of it like he's spending her potential money and she doesn't like it. And she confides in multiple people, including her boyfriend at the time, James Roden, who ends up dead, that she wants somebody to kill her father so that she can get his inheritance money now before he squanders it all away. But James, like a normal person with a conscience, thinks that this scheme is messed up and starts an argument over it. And he even threatens to report her murder scheme to the police. And in a really counterintuitive attempt to rid herself of those potential criminal charges, she then murders James right then and there and calls up her ex-boyfriend, Bill Rothstein, to help hide the body, which is the man interviewing with police right now and giving them this info. But police haven't forgotten his strange statement that this murder has nothing to do with Brian Wells' murder by the bomb caller. So the police press deeper. Why would he even say that? Is Marjorie involved in Brian's murder and the bank robbery in some way? Because before this, they were not even looking at her. But, you know, Bill had to say something. So now they're looking into it. And Bill Rothstein spills the beans way easier than police expected him to. He admits to investigators that Marjorie had recently found a hitman who is willing to kill her father for her. But that hitman wants to be paid $250,000 to kill her dad. The magic number. The magic number. So this hitman is Marjorie's friend named Kenneth Barnes, who is a crack dealer. So Marjorie orchestrated a convoluted scheme, which includes Kenneth building a bomb, then luring an innocent person to them, putting the collar on, and forcing this innocent person to rob the bank of $250,000 so she can use that money to pay Kenneth to kill her dad and then get her inheritance money. And Brian Wells just so happened to be the unlucky person lured to Marjorie on August 28th of 2003. Wow. This is the story told by Bill. Police also believe that Bill, the man who's telling them this story and is hiding the dead body in his house, might be more involved in this whole bomb scheme than he is admitting. But sadly, many of their questions for Bill Rothstein must go unanswered when he passes away from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma less than a year after the bomb collar tragedy took place. Wow. Luckily, whether he was involved or not, he did contact police and lead them to Marjorie for two murder cases. Marjorie is arrested and charged for the murder of her ex-boyfriend, James Roden, whose body police did in fact find in a freezer in Bill's garage. Marjorie pleads guilty but mentally ill to the third-degree murder of James Roden, claiming that he was also abusive and that she was defending herself. But what about Brian Wells? How did he become involved in Marjorie's insane scheme to rob a bank with a bomb collar on? After much grueling investigation, police are able to slowly piece together what they believe happened on August 28th of 2003. And the story goes like this. 
Marjorie had worked with two men to organize this scheme to ultimately have her dad killed and get his inheritance. The first man is Bill Rothstein, who hid her ex's body in his freezer. So Bill knew of her scheme to kill her dad and is the one who actually made the collar bomb out of two egg timers that Marjorie gave him. The second man is Kenneth Barnes, her crack dealer friend and the one who's willing to kill her dad for $250,000. So Kenneth makes the pipe bomb that is then attached to the bomb collar. And then this group of three people, so Marjorie, Bill, and Kenneth, meet the day before the bombing on August 27th, where they combine the collar bomb with the pipe bomb. And then here they also plan the scavenger hunt out, including writing those notes, along with preparing the shotgun that is disguised as a cane. Marjorie just had to find the perfect person to force or manipulate into robbing the bank for her. As the group brainstormed who they should send for the bank robbery, the hitman, Kenneth, asked a sex worker who was living with him at the time if she knew of anybody that they could recruit or they could use. He told her that he'd give her money and drugs if she could find someone. So she came up with the name Brian Wells because Brian was one of her regular customers who she knew pretty well and she knew his pizza delivery schedule and his work hours. So Marjorie hears about Brian Wells and thinks this is perfect. The plan is in place, he works tomorrow, and Brian has no idea that these people even exist at this point. At 1.30 p.m. on August 28, 2003, Brian Wells was working his shift, and Marjorie called Mama Mia's Pizzeria using a payphone and ordered two small pizzas to a location way off the beaten path on the outskirts of Erie. So Brian packs up the pizzas and heads to the address given to him, but when he arrives, it is not someone's home. It's an old TV transmission tower that is in the middle of the woods with no witnesses nearby. Ugh, why'd he get out? And a side note, Bill's house was actually super nearby, which is where Marjorie's ex's dead body was being stored in the freezer at this time. So this next part is the only part that is still a little bit hazy to police. But Brian ends up with a pipe bomb collar around his neck and with a shotgun heading toward PNC Bank. The three people had given him instructions on what to say if caught or if questioned, including the strange detail where they wanted him to claim that three black men forced him to do this. I wonder why. So on the other hand, Marjorie and Kenneth swear to police that they had convinced Brian to do this for them. Oh, like they yeah. hadn't forced him, they had convinced him. That sounds about right. Yeah, so saying he was doing this voluntarily because they promised him a cut of the robbed bank money and he felt desperate for money at the time, so he said he would do it. They said that Brian didn't realize the bomb collar was real until it was already locked and secured around his neck and then by then it was too late. They also say that Brian was a part of this plan from the beginning since day one of planning. Okay. Which makes no sense. I'm sure. So these details came from Marjorie and Kenneth. So they're two immensely untrustworthy people. Yep. Brian's family is furious at these testimonies. They're so upset to hear about this and they insist that their loved one would never have agreed to a bank heist or to put on a bob collar that could kill him and that he must have been forced at gunpoint. Either way, Brian Wells ends up dead less than two hours after the pizza delivery from the detonation of that bomb. And Marjorie admitted to being a quarter mile away when this happened watching him die through binoculars. 
Both Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Kenneth Barnes are charged with crimes related to Brian's death, but neither one of them are charged with any degree of murder. How? Kenneth was actually in prison for drug-related charges for quite some time after the bombing, you know, since he was a crack dealer, and it was his brother that came and told police about Kenneth's involvement in the bombing, resulting in his indictment after realizing that this was the second person to tell police about Kenneth's involvement. In 2008, at the age of 54, Kenneth pleads guilty to two felonies, which are conspiracy to commit bank robbery and using a destructive device during a crime of violence. He also agrees to testify against Marjorie for a reduced sentence. His court date comes before Marjorie's, where in 2008, Kenneth is sentenced to 45 years in prison. Boom. So Marjorie's court date is up next in 2010, seven years after Brian Wells' bomb-induced death. It would have been sooner, but in 2008, she was deemed incompetent for trial because of her erratic behavior and progressed bipolar disorder. So she is now deemed competent again in 2010. A side note also... A few months before her court hearings, Marjorie is diagnosed with breast cancer and has a metastatic tumor removed from her neck. Her doctor tells her that she only has three to seven years to live, but despite this news, the prosecutor still proceeds with the trial. I also want to note that this is federal court, and the federal court system does not give the possibility of parole in the sentencing. So in court, Marjorie acts insane on the stand. She is rambling for long periods of time, despite the judge's numerous requests for her to stop. So Marjorie, when she's on the stand, she's claiming that the other two men, Bill and Kenneth, had framed her and that she had nothing to do with this. Really? Kenneth also testifies in her trial. That's the reason why he got a reduced sentence. He explains the entire backstory of Marjorie ordering the bank heist so that she would have money to pay him to be her father's hitman, which she claims is baloney, even though she had already confessed her involvement to investigators years earlier. She just all of a sudden is taking it back in court. She doesn't even remember what she said. Right. After two days of deliberation, which was a total of 11 and a half hours, the jury convinced convicts 61-year-old Marjorie Deal Armstrong of armed bank robbery, conspiracy, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence for bank robbery. Marjorie is sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. While serving their prison sentences, both Marjorie and Kenneth die in prison. Marjorie dies in April of 2017 of breast cancer at 68 years old. And Kenneth has had a lifelong battle with diabetes and he dies in prison in June of 2018 at 65 years old. This means every person convicted of their involvement in the bombing and every person suspected of being involved is now dead as of 2023. Police do believe that Bill Rothstein, who had helped Marjorie hide her ex-boyfriend's dead body, they do believe he played a significant role in the planning of this bombing and the bank robbery. Remember, he came to police first and told them everything, and they believe that he did this to ensure that the other masterminds behind the scheme didn't beat him to it. 
but you cannot charge or convict somebody who has died. And remember, he had already died years before of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that's where I'll leave this story. It's a wild ride of a pizza delivery man robbing a bank with a bomb collar forced onto his neck by a group of people trying to get hitman money, resulting in the horrible explosive death of Brian Wells. Thank you all for listening to this episode. It is insane. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen so that it can be spooky season year round. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Ghastly Podcast to see photos from each case. We'll see you guys in two weeks for our next episode. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.